0: felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. (laughs) We're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Do you know that when John and Peter, the disciples, ran to the empty tomb on resurrection morning, that they did not see Jesus like Mary Magdalene did. They did not see an angel like the other women did. No, when they got to the empty tomb, what they saw were the burial cloths, the strips of linen that uh, had been put around Jesus' body when he was left in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They saw the burial cloth, the strips of linen, still there in the tomb, but Jesus was gone. In John's account of that morning, he says that that was all he needed to believe. That was all he needed to believe that Jesus was alive and risen. Peter, on the other hand, wasn't so sure. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. So we're back in uh, John chapter 20, and um, we're Moving forward with John's account of what happened on Resurrection morning, he having been there, uh, to give us a firsthand account from his perspective of what he wants us to know about that. And we've covered uh, pretty much up to verse 5-ish, um, but I want to go ahead and uh, read um, the, the prior to that just to remind us and to set the the stage and the context of what we're going to be talking about today. But I'm not going to start in verse 1 of chapter 20 because, although it's not in your translations, I would venture a guess, in the original Mm -hmm. Greek, the um, first word, uh, virtually, of verse 20, uh, chapter 1, or or chapter 20, verse 1, is but. But earlier. So when you see the word but in scripture, you really need to go back a little bit to find out what the but is all about. So let's go back, and we'll just pick up uh, from chapter 19, verse 38, and uh, we'll go from there. So it says, Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Just as an aside, um, and I'm and and take it for what it's worth, uh, but some people say that the uh, the the kind of the standard operating procedure back in that day was to have the amount of myrrh and aloes to be approximately half of the weight of the person who they were uh, tre- you know, treating with that at their burial so if that were true for jesus if you don't take it to that extent i'm not saying you should i'm just pointing this out as an interesting thing for you to know that uh, if that were true here, uh, then you could say that Jesus probably was approximately about 150 pounds. That is not very heavy, uh, but he probably was a pretty lean guy, I think, in, in the way that I would see him in my own memory. But for what it's worth, uh, take it as, as you please. That's an interesting thing, I think. Okay, verse 40. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen... This is so important uh, to what we're going to hear about with John and Peter, that uh, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something else you've heard about for burial custom? to wrap a body with strips of linen. Yeah, exactly. Mummification in Egypt, right? This was more or less a common practice of the Egyptians in their in the mummies that we have found. So, where do you think in ancient history the Jews came up with this idea as their burial custom? to wrap in strips of linen those who are dead. Well, they were in Egypt for a while, weren't they? And so in in likelihood, this is where they came up with the practice, but they elevated it, the Jewish people did, and the, the aloes and the spices and so forth. So they took the basic practice of the Egyptians in wrapping the bodies of their dead with these strips of linen, but they elevated it even more so, and um, and did with these these aloes and spices and so on and so forth. W- which, by the way, were uh, um, uh, you know it, it, they they were they were treating the um, the wrappings with the spices and the aloe as well. To when so when they put those on the body, those were soaked with the aloes and the spices and and all of that that they had taken there that day. Verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay, that's the background. uh, Chapter 20, verse 1. But early on the first day of the week, While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, who was John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. When Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John got there first. John bent over and looked in at the strips. He looked in. He saw. So here's one. Um, I'm going to come back to this. But John bent over and saw the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He... What saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He, what? Saw and believed. So look there. We have three instances, right? We have John going and he saw, and then Peter came, and he saw, and then John went in, and he saw again. So that's an interesting thing. And these burial cloths are also very, very important, aren't they? Because, why? Because Mary Magdalene, um, I'll take those, the women who were there, not Mary Magdalene, because she left before the angel angels got there, But the other women who went with Mary that day, who didn't immediately run back to talk to Peter and John, those women who stayed at the tomb heard an angel speak, didn't they? Uh, Later on, which we'll go to next in John, we have Mary Magdalene coming back to the tomb after Peter and John leave, and there when she's at the tomb by herself, she actually sees Jesus, right? Right? The other women, when they go back, they're on their way back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, which the angel told them to go back and tell the disciples that he is risen, that he is alive. On their way back, they also meet Jesus. So you have, the women have seen an angel. Uh, Mary will eventually see Jesus herself. The women will eventually see Jesus, uh, uh, them uh, you know, as well. But Peter and John do not see Jesus, and they do not see an angel. So, what do they see? The empty tomb is right. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the stone rolled back. That's that's look look at look at the emphasis that John puts here on the strips of linen. Not once. Not twice. But three times, he says, we saw the strips of linen, and we saw the burial cloth that was around his head. No Jesus, no angels, but burial cloths. So what was so extraordinary about these these cloths? Because if you look at verse um, uh, was 8, he says, Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, went inside, and he saw, what? The linen strips, and he what? He believed.
1: Yeah, What does that mean, though? Because then right after that, it says that that they did not
0: yet understand. It means John believed without knowing knowing the Scripture. He believed by what he saw, not by what he knew (laughs) intellectually. (laughs) So, what was it about these burial cloths that made them so extraordinary that John had to, talk about, had to mention three times that they saw them, and he goes on to say, when I saw them, I believed that Jesus had risen. Well, we know who put the barrel cloth on, right? It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. We just saw that in verse 19. This was a meticulous thing that was done. The strips of linen, they would wrap, wrap the fingers, and then they would wrap, wrap the hands, and they would wrap the body and you know, from, from uh, you know, pretty much chest all the way down to the toes, and the arms would be wrapped in it as well. And so you've seen mummies, and basically this was like a mummy kind of thing. But what they did is because they treated the, uh, these cloths with um, these spices... And aloes and so forth. Over the course of a day or so, they became rather stiffish, right? They they were no longer strips of linen that were untreated that are just you know soft and malleable. Uh, they weren't even just like wet, like, like a wet cloth would be, but they were kind of glued, kind of glueish, kind of glued together. Now, it wasn't like concrete, you know, it wasn't like you were ensconced in concrete and couldn't move, but, you know, it would take some effort to, you know, to get out of these things because they were, they were kind of crusty. I don't know how how else you'd say it, you know, I don't know what the exact word would be to say it, but they, you know, they would, they would, you know, they, they, they just weren't, Easily thrown off, let's say. So, to get an idea of a, a comparison would be Lazarus, right? Who rose from the dead? Remember the story of Lazarus. When he came out of the tomb, what did they have to do? Re- they had to remove the burial cloth. They had to remove the strips, right? So, uh, so, so here, so here's the picture. So. You're, he, so, Because they wrapped him in the same type of strips of linen when they buried him as well. So uh, Lazarus was able, even though he was ensconced in these burial cloths, these strips of linen, treated with those aloes and so forth, he was able to sit up. He was able to stand up. He was able to walk out of the tomb to a certain extent. And then they were able to help him get out of, the cloth that he, he was in. So it wasn't like a concrete type of thing, but it wasn't easily done either. It took some effort. Now, in Lazarus's case, when he came walking out of the tomb with the burial cloth still on partially, and they took the burial cloth off, what do you think was left behind? A pile, a pile of burial cloths, right? A pile of bear, either in the tomb or outside of the tomb, there was a pile of burial cloths. Okay. So now let's compare that to Jesus' burial cloths and strips of linen, right? So John and Peter go in there, and they see the burial cloths. Are they in a pile? No. Are they thrown around the place? No. What are they? They're empty. Well, not, not exactly. One piece was neatly folded, was the piece around his head. The, the bare cloth that was around his head was neatly folded. But the rest of the bare cloths were not folded. They were not flat. Exactly. Right exactly. It's like paper, exactly. It's like paper mache. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you have left? You have an empty form with nothing inside. This is the burial cloth. This is the burial cloth. So the bur- when Jesus rose up out of the burial cloth, those burial cloths didn't fall flat. No. They held their shape. They, he didn't fold those. No. He folded just the handkerchief that was around his head. When he came up out of those burial cloths, out of those strips of linen, they kept their shape. okay. But there was nothing inside. No body. So Peter and John look at the burial cloths, and it's there. It looks like it has a body. They look like they have a body inside. But then when they go and they look in the top, it's like, (laughs) no body. The mummies of ancient Egypt, when you look inside the mummy... There's bones, right? Peter and John look inside this cocoon. Like, I, like, I, like think, I like to think about it as a cocoon. It's like a cocoon, right? And they looked inside this cocoon that still kept its shape, and there's Jesus is not in there. His body is not in there. So why was John able to believe when he saw this? This is what. This is what. John based his faith on, empty burial cloth, b- barrel strips. Why? Because they weren't folded, they hadn't been handled. Because see, if they'd been folded, someone from the outside could have done that, not necessarily just Jesus, right? If someone could have come in and could have meticulously taken those strips off of Jesus and stolen the body and moved it and, and folded those up really nice and neat, and we wouldn't know who had done that. Maybe Jesus had done it, maybe someone else had done it. Or, you know, if somehow the barrel cloths had just fallen like, like they were untreated and just were flat on the place where he lay, well, you know, maybe someone had somehow, somehow extricated him out of there and they had just fallen. But no, they had kept their—the only possible explanation for that to have happened was that he rose out of those barrel cloths and left them behind. He rose out when he was resurrected. He just came up out of them and just left them behind, and they were just there like an empty cocoon. Now that would be impressive, wouldn't that? That would be, that would be something to talk about when you write about your experience at the tomb, is that, oh my goodness, guess what? I went in there, we went into that tomb, and the birth cloths were still there. The strips of linen were still there, but he was gone. They looked, it looked like he should be in there, but he wasn't. He was gone. And John's only explanation is, well, the only possible explanation at all that could possibly work is that he was raised out of those and left them behind. So that's why it's such an important thing that they talk about because that is an impressive thing to see. That can make a difference on your faith or not when you see something like that and i love the idea of a cocoon too because what happens with a cocoon with a cocoon an old uh ugly caterpillar goes into this cocoon and then it comes out a certain number of days later right this beautiful butterfly which is like a whole new life for this creature and jesus went into the tomb bloodied and battered, and tortured, and he came out the light of the world. He came out our Savior. He came out our Messiah. He came out all that he is and gave us an opportunity for a new life through his resurrection. So the idea of cocoon, I think, is really appropriate in terms of just the poetry of God because just this awful, terrible human body was into this cocoon, but out of it came this Glorious spiritual body, this glorified body that Christ had, and uh, He gives just like the butterfly gives, and it gets new life. We get new life through what Jesus did there. Yes, sir.
2: What's your reflection on the uh, face cloth? Uh, that the I know that the NIV says the shroud, and that reminds me the shroud of Yeah. Well, that's a totally different. Correct. I think that might have been an interpretation of the translators of. Uh,
0: Yeah, The actual Greek word means handkerchief or napkin. And it wasn't only used for burial. It was just a common term that was used, generally speaking, I mean, they used it for burials, they did, but the more common usage was just a a handkerchief or a napkin to wipe off perspiration. So that was a common day-to-day a term for this piece of uh, l- linen or cloth is, you know, a farmer goes out to farm. It's hot. He takes his his handkerchief, and this is what it was. It was that
1: just laid across his face, and it didn't have
0: the involvement? No, I think I think it was probably put around his head, you know, like.
1: It wasn't treated with all those aloe.
0: I think it may have been. Yeah, I think it may have been. Uh, well, well, here's, uh, let me address it, because there are two different lines of thought on that. So first of all, let me talk about the fact that it's a handkerchief and a napkin, and it's generally used daily for this kind of application. And I can really relate to that, because uh, when I was preaching, Walnut Hills uh, has no air conditioning. And so uh, when it was really, really, really bad, we would have an air conditioner in one of the Sunday school rooms, one of the larger Sunday school rooms. We would just go in there and have our service on a really hot day. But there are a lot of days where it's kind of like on the borderline. And it's like, uh, you know, uh, do we want to go in there or stay in the sanctuary? And the sanctuary there is so beautiful. I mean, it's just one of the most beautiful sanctuaries I've ever seen. Do you, do you think it was how pretty it was I don't know. Oh, it was so pretty in there. It's just a dark, like, German wood. And anyway, so we didn't really like to leave it if we didn't have to because it was so pretty in there. So anyway, be that as it may, every single Sunday I had a handkerchief in my pocket. Because invariably I was like, okay, it's hot today. You know, and if you need it, you need it. So even today I have it with me. You know, I just always have. just kind of a habit. So um so I understand how that the functionality of that. So this is just the item that was put around Jesus' head. Now, I think they did treat it with aloe and and spices. The reason I think that is because his head was in terrible shape, right? That's where the crown of thorns was. So I have to think that his forehead around his head was terribly bloody and 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 beat up and and terrible. So I think that, you know, they would have treated that Uh, handkerchief that was around his head with the aloes and so forth. Remember, the aloes don't make it concrete, they just make it somewhat stiff, as it were. So, when it it says here uh, in, let's see, what verse is it? It says, uh, verse uh, 6 and 7, that uh, Peter saw the strips of linen lying there, verse 7, as well as the burial cloth, that's the handkerchief, that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself. Well, that's a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, because in the original Greek, the word folded up there really means to be rolled up. It means to be rolled up. So, two lines of thought there. One is that, as Grady asked, that they did put this cloth somewhat wow, around Jesus' head, uh, like this, kind of around, as like a tourniquet kind of thing, perhaps. And that when he was resurrected, as he came out of the strips of linen around his body and left that behind as a cocoon still in its shape, that this around his head was also left in its shape, where his head was. So you would just see, you know, this circle just sitting there on the uh, like he came out of it, and it's you know still around his head. That's one train of thought. I prefer a second idea on that. And that is that that for that particular piece of linen that Jesus himself actually took it and even though it was stiff, he could still do this, that he carefully rolled, remember it says rolled up, that he carefully rolled it up and you know, like, like, like this, you know, rolled it up, and that he put it there, you know, there where his head was. Why do I like to think that? Well, I don't know. I mean, I just You know, this was around his head. This is this piece was bloody, and he just the fact that he took time and took the care to in a orderly uh, way to take a moment and just take that piece and roll it up and just put it there. And I just like the idea of the care of Christ doing that. That you know, he did it with his own hands and placed it there carefully rather than just leaving it there, that particular piece he actually handled and, and took care of. And and this is yet and, and when you think about it, this is yet another evidence, you know, of why it was such a ridiculous story that someone had stolen Jesus' body that the religious leaders tried to come up with and the Roman soldiers tried to come up with. Because who is going to take a bloody, terrible Awful cloth like that, and carefully roll it up and place it there. It was it was an awful, dirty, bloody thing. If anyone else had gotten to it to remove it from Jesus' body, they would just thrown it away or thrown it to the side because it was nothing. It was it was nothing. It was a handkerchief that was full of blood and all that stuff. But Jesus rolled it up and put it aside because why? Because that wasn't just a bloody rag, that was symbolic of the blood of salvation for all of us. And the care they took to put that there, I think I just like that that idea. But there are two ways of thought. One either the thing was left there, that part, and that was the same kind of thing, or one that he rolled it up and put it aside. And I think either one, you know, would have been impressive to Peter and John that, hey, Jesus himself, he did that. He's the one. Who rolled it up and put it there? Isn't that amazing? Not the burst your bubble. Okay, no. From a medical standpoint, cancer saying doesn't make any sense. Okay.
2: They wash the body. Okay. In preparation, body doesn't bleed
0: after. Okay. All right.
2: So the wall around. Is well,
0: maybe it cool. wouldn't have been. I, okay, I take, My That's all around his head. I clean. I stand corrected on that. I you're the doctor, you would know. But I kind of look it up. I can't find it. That's fine. But, but either in either case, he—if you were just going to steal the body, you wouldn't have treated that with any care. You would have just thrown it aside. You would have thrown it away. But he took the time to roll it up and to put it there. So the, the basic fact is still true that the barrel cloths were still there in a cocoon shape. They were just, you know, empty, and the cloth it was somehow. Tre- and I, I like this because. I think the fact that John mentions it separately is is the the impact it had on him that Jesus treated this head wrapping with some special care with his own two hands and put it there and and that spoke to uh, John in a powerful way and I think to us too that you know Jesus took time to take care of this and do this in this way you so'
1: still the body you might just even take the body with them. Yeah. Strips of linen, you know, I'll just
0: take the Right. Minute. Or if you weren't you would have strips of, like like with Lazarus you'd have a pile of yeah. So so the important thing is that the strips of linen themselves, the way that they were left behind by Jesus said to John, it's true. Resurrection is true. He is risen. This was not done by human human means. This was done by supernatural means through through God and 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 so guess what i as it says there in verse uh 8 uh, he believed from that that's all it took for him to believe so okay but one thing i want to go back to here just real quickly is to talk about um the uh the, the Saul the where we we saw the uh, where you you see Saul three different times here so um we have in verse 5 again, we have John bending over, and he looks in at the strips of linen. He saw them. It, they translate as look, look, but it actually is saw in the Greek. Uh, of linen lying there, but he did not go in. And then in verse 6, Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. Peter then saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the bare cloth been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up or rolled up by itself separate from the linen. And then finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed and had faith. So, three different saws there. The problem with the English language is that we only have one word for that, and that's saw. But actually, there are three different Greek words that are used. So... Um, why is it three different Greek words that are used? Because John is talking to us about three different kinds of seeing here. So in the first one, in verse uh, five, where we have uh, John bending over and looking into the tomb, the uh, the Greek idea there is that just the physical uh, the physical act of seeing something. So. John bent over, he looked inside, and he saw all the strips of linen. He physically saw them. That's all John is saying there. Is I looked in and I saw them there. The next one, where we have Peter having seen the saw that is there, the Greek actually means to carefully examine something. Not just to look and see it, but to carefully examine it. And with the with the with the idea of you're carefully examining it because you're trying to understand it. You're trying to figure out what, what what's going on here. What does this mean? And so when Peter went in and he saw the strips of linen, he's, he looked at them really closely. He was probably the one that looked in from the top to see that there was no body inside. And so he carefully examined, trying to understand what is going on here. What, what does this mean? And we know this is pretty much exactly the same description that we have from Luke when Luke talks about Peter's reaction to things, that when Peter went home that day, according to Luke's account, one of the things that Peter was trying to do was trying to figure out something has happened here, something new is going on here, something has begun here that was never begun before, and what does it mean? So both Luke and John want us to understand that Peter was trying to get his arms around, trying to get his head around what was going on in Resurrection morning. But he hadn't yet got there yet. He was he examined it. He was trying to understand it. He did a careful examination, but he was still asking the question, what does this mean? And then the third one, where we have John coming then into the tomb, and John looking at it, and it says that he saw and believed. The The idea of their seeing is that you see something, and you perceive it, and you understand it. So what John is saying here is that when I went in and saw it, I got it. I knew what it meant. I saw it. In verse 5, I saw it with my eyes. And then in verse 8, I saw it with my heart. When I saw it with my heart, I, I understood it, I got it, and I believed in what I saw. What I saw led me to believe in Christ. So those are the three different uh, ideas of seeing there. And I think, you know, John purposely put those three in there that way, because, you know there are three very different reactions to what they saw there that day, and, and, uh, in terms of what, what, what happened when they got there and looked into the tomb. So So we get to the, now we get to uh, the place where we have uh, Peter and John both have made a decision. So John gets to the tomb. He sees the stone rolled away, like we said. He sees that the tomb is empty. He sees the linen strips of cloth that we just talked about. He sees the burial cloth put to the side, as we just talked about. He has the women's testimony who came to them and said, Hey, we've seen an angel, and the angel says he's risen, and uh, he's alive. And then, so John goes, and he sees this, and he has faith. He believes Uh, that what he sees is true. If you look at verse 10, it says, verse 10, then the disciples went back to their home. So John went home saying, yes, Jesus is risen. Yes, he's alive. Yes, he's been resurrected. I've seen enough. I've seen all I need to see. I've heard all I need to hear. I'm good. But Peter, he doesn't have that reaction. Peter goes home still in, in Luke, we, we, he says that Peter was wondering about what had happened. He was shocked. He was taken aback by it. And he's asking himself, what has happened here? Something new has taken place. Something that has never begun has begun. Something has come into being that was never before. And Peter is still struggling with what he has seen. So, what what is this? I still, I'm not quite sure what this means. And so I'm at, my question to you is, do you think one of the problems that Peter had in really believing in the resurrection when he went home that day. As far as I know, when he went home that day, he still wasn't completely convinced in the resurrection of Christ. So do you think that the guilt that he had from uh, you know, denying Jesus made it harder for him to believe in Christ in that way at this point? Do you think that had something to do with it?
2: I think there was guilt and shame, and he still hadn't grappled with that. and you know with the with the disciples even hiding themselves from the authorities and everything there was still that fear factor that was there and uh, they didn't have any ma- mental health experts around, you know, like we would have today um. And I think uh, I want to believe, but I can't confirm it for sure. And what's Jesus going to say to you if I talk with him or if I see him? How is he, is he going to berate me because I've denied him three times? So you have all that stuff going on in your mind. I think that has a lot to do with it. And then when you come with uh, of the death of someone, especially if you feel... That you had somehow uh, done something that will cause the death of that person. There is you're overwhelmed with that guilt and shame and forgiveness, and you just keep it in here. And the problem that I see is, and we, and we as all human beings do, it, is we don't know how to let it go. But and, so I think a lot of it had to do with it. That's part of it, but
1: I think another part of it is Peter was a pretty stubborn, guy, yeah. you know, a pretty stubborn guy. And not only that, but they had all been talking like, you know, he was supposed to, he was supposed to be the one who was supposed to save us. They haven't really gotten over the fact. that he got crucified. He didn't, he didn't come forward and save the nation like he they thought he would. And so, yeah, you've got to process that. All right. John was, John was. uh uh, more of, what would that be, an aesthetic? But John was what's more of an inner person, and mm-hmm. he was able to absorb that more quickly
2: than someone like Peter. Good point. Well, and I think even when we look yeah. at, when Jesus told Peter, I'm going to build my church, you're the cornerstone. And that was pre-everything, and that has to have something to do. Well, I'm going to be the leader of the church. <laughs> you know.
0: Well, I wonder, I wonder if... Maybe today that still isn't a problem for some people. You know they have they have trouble coming to Christ and giving them their lives because they have guilt about something in their lives. You know, oh, God could never forgive me for this, or I'm not a good enough for or i need I need to become a better person before I become a Christian or different things. Um, and sometimes I think for some people, it's harder for them to come to Christ in salvation, asking for salvation because they have something. They feel so guilty about in their own lives as well. So
1: I think those people, though, once they have accepted Christ, are the strongest believers. And I think that's what happened to Peter. I think uh, uh, he was selected to be the, the the rock because Jesus knew that he would he wouldn't let go. He, he would be he would be just like Paul. Paul was the same way. He was he was selected to go forward by Jesus because. He was, he was just, he grab onto something he wouldn't
0: let go. Well, you see this in Mary Magdalene, for example. I mean, she is the only one in all four Gospels mentions having been there that morning, but she so appreciated what Jesus did for her that her faith in Him and her belief in Him and her devotion to Him was so great because she'd been delivered in such a marvelous, miraculous way that. They had that impact on her life. She couldn't let go of that because of what, God, what Christ had done for her. So, I agree. So, I want to take just a minute because it says that John believed there in verse eight, and the word there translated "believed" is actually faith that he had faith. So, I wanted to have a definition of faith, and you guys have heard this a million times, but I wanted just to, if you if you go to verse uh, to Hebrews uh, chapter eleven, which is the great faith chapter in the Bible. Uh, but it gives us right off the bat in verse 1 of chapter 11 of Hebrews basically the definition of faith. And the writer of Hebrews says this, now faith is, okay. so here's the definition, now faith is this, this is what faith is, the definition. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So those are kind of paradoxical, aren't they? You're being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. But if you look into the actual language that's used there, being sure that the idea there is that this is a guarantee. This is a guarantee. Now, guarantee in our world today has a has a sad connotation, doesn't it? I guarantee this is the best hamburger ever No, it's not the best hamburger I ever had. I guarantee this car will not break down. No well, car breaks down. You know, so guarantees they are a dime a dozen. But this guarantee is from God. And it's the faith is having the guarantee from God of what you hope for. You we'll can come back to that in a minute. That you're it's just guaranteed what you hope for is guarantee. And you're certain the idea is there is having assurance. You have assurance of what you do not see. So you're guaranteed, you have assurance. And it comes down to I like this word for hope here. This is my favorite word in the whole Greek language. Elpis. Elpis is the Greek word. And I like to think of it as Elvis. Help me remember what it means. Elvis and Elvis. So Elvis, this kind of uh, hope is not wishful thinking. Wishful thinking is, I hope this happens. I hope I win the lottery. It's wishful thinking. There's nothing to lead you to believe you're ever going to win the I hope I do. And, and wishful thinking leads to no action, Right? I I, I hope this happens, but it produces no, but elpis, that hope means it's the hope of expectation. The hope of expectation. In other words, you're hoping that what you hope for, you're expecting to happen. And you have the guarantee. So in faith, what you're hoping for is expected to happen and guaranteed by God. And when you have the expectation of what you're hoping for is going to happen, then you become active in it, and you participate in it. So Elvis is the active activity of believing and hope. What you hope for is you can expect to happen is going to happen, and you can participate in it while, it's, while you're waiting for it. And uh, I think of it because Elvis, because I think all those Elvis fans believe that he's going to be back sometime and start singing it. But I wanted to read this, Doris gave this to us, we'll end on this today. Doris gave this to me a couple weeks ago, and it talks about hope. And uh, it talks about Elpus. So I'm going to read it just quickly, and then we'll end with this. It says, uh, it is. It seems ingrained in our thinking that there is no hope. Our cosmic situation, if you will, is hopeless. However, as G.K. Chesterton observed, charity means pardoning what is unpardonable, or it is no virtue at all. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it has no virtue at all. And faith means believing the incredible, or it has no virtue at all. In other words, the absence of the tangibility of these concepts, charity, hope, faith, is not evidence that they do not exist, or that they do not point to something real. They are the very conditions under which we prove the order of the benevolence of, the meaning of the whole created world, visible and invisible. We have hope despite the darkness, the chaos, the anarchy, and the evil with which our world is blighted. And if we do not have it, then we are a lost people. The word from ancient Greek, the, the, word the ancient Greek poet Hesiod used for hope is elpis, which can mean hope, but it is often also translated as meaning expectation. In my book, blah, 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 I outlined the theory that motivation compromises three primary ingredients, our personality, our self-concept, and crucially, our expectations. What are expectations? Expectations are our beliefs about future outcomes. To give a simple example, if we believe that applying for a highly desirable job is going to be successful, then our motivation to apply is going to be high we believe that applying for such a job is going to be unsuccessful, then we are less likely uh, to, less motivated to apply. But if expectations are a key ingredient of motivation, they are also critical to hope as well. As so-and-so said in her article, blah, 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 uh, expectations accompanied by action is a hallmark of hope. Uh, in his book, Working with Emotional Intelligence, Dr. Daniel Gole- Goleman states, competence studies show that top performers in the human services, everything from healthcare and counseling to teaching, express hope for those they seek to help. In jobs like these, where stress is high and frustration is common, hope is crucial. And then the summation is, but perhaps most powerfully of all, when we consider the future orientation of hope, is to remember that wonderful saying of Saint Clement of Alexandria: "If you do not hope, you will not find what is beyond your hopes." If our hope were to be realized, become an actuality, something even more incredible might occur. So that is the kind of hope that they're talking about in Hebrews chapter one. There. Sad. Now this is uh, Doris gave this to me. It is from uh, the Epic Times, uh, August 24th to 30th. So. All right, guys, that's all we have for today. Next week, we're going to go into Mary Magdalene at the tomb, the next part of John's account. So I, I
1: just wanted to make a comment. Yeah. I don't think we can live without hope. I think just being alive, I think, uh, we sweet hope. We can't live without hope.
0: I, it's hard to imagine, isn't it, that people who don't have Christ in their lives,
1: yeah.
0: they don't have that hope that we have. Ugh, it's hard to believe. So. I'm going to I have a couple of
1: questions, maybe.
2: Okay. Um, sure.
1: It says here that that you read earlier that the um, Joseph of Arimathea and
2: Nicodemus came with seventy-five pounds of Weiss, But the women, why would the women come the next day to put even more on? It exactly. If it's already seventy-five pounds.
0: Now, Ruth, do you really don't, do you really don't know the answer to that? The answer to that, because the, the women knew the men didn't do it right.
2: <laughs> Why do you reason that?
0: <laughs> the women said, those men did <laughs> not do it right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they couldn't have been carrying 75 pounds of And the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb while they were it doing it this. So yeah. And then <laughs> the other question is it says that in um, Matthew, that the chief priests and the Pharisees coming to Pilate said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that Jesus said, After three days I will rise again. They remembered that. But, but over here, John, they still did not understand the scripture that Jesus had to live.
0: Right. They had to use the Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus, and they didn't know how to do that at that point. Right. Well, they said they didn't say they could prove it from Old Testament scriptures. They just said they they knew that that's what Jesus had said, right? But that's a whole different kind of. You have to know intellectually where those passages are, what they say, how they point to Jesus. But they did find. You know, when they found out about it, was on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus was walking with them, and it says specifically, starting at Moses and using all the prophets, he showed them the scripture that applied to him as Messiah. So after that, they knew. But before this was before that. At this point, they really hadn't put it all together. Jesus, Jesus showed them himself how to prove him from the Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, I
1: just don't understand this because those Pharisees remembered
2: that while he was still alive, that deceitful creature. Yeah, three
0: days, I will One of those mysteries. How they could not have remembered that? I do not know.
1: Maybe it's possible that that was after the road to Emmaus, after everything, and
0: then it was. No, I don't think so. I, I, I don't think so. I think it's just, you know, the 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 secular people remembered it, and the uh, uh, the followers of Christ didn't. But I think part of that was because of the deep depression and how awful and down they felt. As Brady said earlier, that Jesus did not do what they expected Him to do, and they, and in that, in that level and depth of grief, they just weren't thinking straight. They just weren't thinking straight.
1: Yeah,
0: because yeah, they weren't affected that way, and they, they weren't, they weren't in grieving about it. So, okay, so that's it. I- That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today, and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.